Well, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It's an incredible pleasure it is for me to welcome our guest and my former navigator colleague, Glenn Murray, the Minister of Training, Colleges and Universities. Bienvenue, Monsieur le Ministre. Today we might amend that well-known Chinese proverb and curse about living in interesting times to being a minister in challenging times. For we are living in extraordinarily challenging times, the depth and breadth of which were laid bare for us a couple weeks ago by the economist Don Drummond. But with every challenge, of course, comes opportunity. L'occasion est de finir et mettre en œuvre un programme d'innovation pour les gens de l'Ontario, en particulier nos universités. The task Minister Murray and his ministry face is how to meet the challenge while providing opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity, for the young people of our province. Well, Glenn understands how to meet that challenge and to create that opportunity because he understands that innovation is Ontario's opportunity. Pour l'Ontario et retrouver la sa position économique éminente au Canada, il doit se produire grâce à l'innovation. Tom Jenkins, who headed the panel, the federal panel studying this subject, has said, innovation is the wealth creator of the new economic order, but to be successful is to be strategic. Nous avons besoin des approches ciblées et stratégiques. We can point to strategic successes, the Waterloo Innovation Cluster that produced RIM and the Perimeter Institute, and more recently, of course, the Research and Learning Tower at SickKids, which brings 2,000 researchers together in common cause, and the Lee Kaching Knowledge Transfer Center at St. Mike's. So here today to discuss innovation and productivity in the age of acceleration is my good friend, Glenn Murray. A lifelong activist, Glenn was the first gay man in Canada to adopt a child and the first openly gay man to become the mayor of a big city, Winnipeg. He's taught at a number of universities, been a consultant, led a preeminent think tank, chaired the National Roundtable on Business and the Environment, spoken and written widely, and been the subject of what only can be described as fawning, okay, maybe hagiographic media coverage, and contributed measurably to whatever community has found himself in, be it Montreal, Ottawa, Winnipeg, or Toronto. First elected to Queen's Park in August 2010, he was quickly appointed Minister of Research and Innovation. Re-elected in 2011, he became Minister of Training, Colleges and Universities, where he has accountability for innovation and productivity in post-secondary education. And through it all, the worst thing anyone can say about him is that he has a tendency just a wee tendency, Glenn, to talk too much. <laughs> Not too bad for a lifetime of commitment to community and a lifetime of community service. Minister, the Canadian Club podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. We ask only one thing, it's Friday, and we do all have to get back to work. <laughs> Monsieur le Ministre, vous avez la parole. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Jamie, and I am very proud to be your friend. Uh, there's few people I have met in my life that have been so successful in, uh, as a human rights activist, as a business leader, as someone who has advocated for uh, great governance in this country and 
uh, engaging people importantly in the political process, and now a veritable television and movie star in your own right. And uh, it's, uh, it's great. So thank you very much for that. I think I have a speech down here, but I, those of you who know me know I almost never use my notes. Um, I have to tell you, the, the hardest part for me in all of this uh, was trying to figure out where do you begin uh, to try and find the full measure of where we are right now in the world uh, and in this province and in our communities. Uh, I, I call this talk uh, uh, Education in the Age of Acceleration uh, because I think that the rate and pace of change in itself has maybe become the most difficult and consequential challenge to public policy, to leadership, to management, uh, to the economy, to our society, and indeed to our very identity as people, which seems to reinvent itself uh, in an almost disorienting way. Uh, the word is not mine. My dear friend John Polanyi and I were on a panel at Massey College last November when he was asked by a student, Dr. Polanyi, could you please finish the following sentence? We live in the age of. And he paused for about a split second appropriately and then said acceleration. That in fact the pace of change is so dramatic that it in itself is a challenge. And he went on to point out that all of the Polanyi laureates of that year that were coming from many of our fine uh, universities were basically talking about the speed at which change happens from someone in commerce who was looking at stock market and games theory, and why he was doing this was that it was so unpredictable that the mathematical models uh, that operate and determine mass movement of capital in the markets are now that. Right to someone, a biologist, who pointed out that it is the pace of change in our environment and the illability of the fauna and flora of this, of this planet to adapt in time for it and dislocation leading to loss of uh, critical species and, in fact, an existential problem for herself, to a major piece of work on the Golem in Jewish history and looking at the incredible challenge that Jews have today in an ever-changing context of identity and how it's affecting that community globally uh, in such an instantaneous way. But we also live in a world in which most of us have been part of the most successful form of governance liberal democracy, which has emerged in the last century as the most dominant and most successful form of political governments. I don't mean that liberal in a partisan sense because all of us in political parties participate in what was coined in Spain in 1812 in Cadiz when they overthrew a, a monarch and tried to fend off the invading armies of Napoleon uh, in, in making the point that a pluralistic liberal democracy and what emerged as a mixed economy uh, really became the dominant that. Today our challenge isn't communism or totalitarian states of the traditional sense, it's state capitalism. Singapore, China, who, have the, uh, who are building GDP growth rates at 10, 12, 18 percent, who are piling up uh, a level of capital and the ability, whether it is almost seamless between the decision-making power of government and the decision-making power of, of business is now seamless and drives capital and can drive often more successfully the imitation of innovation and the mass production uh, and grabbing a great deal of the value of the high value production chain uh, and the high competition for high design products uh, from the traditional economies, high powered industrial economies. A matter of fact, I think it 
it's appropriate to say that we have moved probably in the last 20 years from an economy in which production was the activity that generated wealth to one in which innovation is the, uh, is the um, major generator of wealth. Um, it is quite interesting to me at the pace of change. The pace of change and the relationship between it and uh, our education systems, which are hard linked into both producing the talent, relating to the capital, and creating the relationships, constructs, and places in which innovation happen. I always find this kind of fascinating that the telephone was invented in 1867. And from then to 1915, it took that long to get 11 million people using telephones. And they weren't telephones, as I discovered, that we use today. Most of those early telephones weren't running on lines that allowed it for a two-way conversation. So people used them almost like we use radios for broadcast and music and things like that. It took several decades before 50 million people became subscribers to the telephone service. It took radio broadcasters 38 years to reach 50 million people. Television, only 13 million years, 13 years rather. <laughs> Feels like million sometimes. Internet uh, reached 50 million people in just four years, and it took only one year for Facebook to get to 60 million participants. Uh, we are accelerating upon accelerating upon accelerating. There are some Soon in the next year or so, there will be 900 million electronic devices online connected to the internet in the world, and it will exceed the number of telephones for the first time in our history. And if you've been to some parts of the world and you've seen how many phones are out there, uh, you get some sense of what that might mean. That this, in fact, new global integrated internet platform is a very new world. It is a completely new environment. It is becoming the hyperdrive of innovation. It is a place in which talent and ideas, the development of ideas have been accelerated, and the movement of those ideas around the world are happening in split seconds. It has transformed the very nature of our economy. We are not the production economy. Yes, it is true. Uh, and people often point out critically that we've lost a quarter of a million uh, manufacturing and production jobs. That's been coming for a long time. When we think of Pittsburgh, we think of what? S steel. In 1983, there were 104 steel mills in the Allegheny Valley. By 1984, there were zero. 243,000 people had lost their jobs. That's almost as many, about the same number that we lost in the 2008 worst global recession, and about 331,000 innovation jobs. But the jobs now are people invent, they perform, they discover, they engineer, they manage, they navigate, they do all kinds of things, but most people do not make things. And it is that innovation in engineering and design in fine arts that has actually re-engineered the production line, that the Linamars, if you talk to Linda Hassenfrass, refers to her company as having 100% of its employees as innovation employees because she says that every day they have to come to work and reinvent the job they do, uh, reinvent the product line. That our new car companies, the new 9,000 jobs that have come back, the 100% job recovery, are not the same kinds of jobs. We are in a high-value performance economy where 70% of jobs require 
a university or college education, which means that that becomes really, really critical. And Chinese universities now have 262,000 for foreign students in them. Education now is competitive as an export product, as an attractor of an industry in its own right. It's also um, really interesting to me to see the pace at which companies are being created right now. About a month ago, the Premier and I visited a young company called Extreme Labs. Uh, they are just around the corner from here on Young Street. The company came online only four years ago uh, with co-founders Amar Varma and Sandeep Madra, who were barely five years out of the universities of Waterloo and Ottawa, respectively. When Extreme Labs got started, Twitter, Android, and iPhone were barely brands. That was the year that they emerged onto the scene as commercial products. Uh, today, they make, uh, Extreme Labs does, some of the world's most exciting social media apps. They employ over 700 people uh, in just four years. Uh, and theirs is a really true made in Ontario success story. And a matter of fact, Amar and Sunny are here, and I'd just like them to stand up wherever they are. Oh, there they are, over there. Right. I, to get a sense of how fast the world is changing, realizing it took them five years out of university and five years to start their company, if they were doing it today, it would be even faster. For if they were at, for example, the digital media zone, not far away from where we are, they wouldn't have waited five years till after university. What is happening in the new economy is that the wall is being erased between the classroom and the workplace. It is hard to tell when you go to the DMZ where those folks are actually students learning or young people at work starting their own businesses. Because what's happening now, people like Amar and Sunny aren't waiting till they graduate. We now have the integration in the school and the workplace becoming one in the same where large companies out of Silicon Valley are providing millions of dollars in capital and startup money to help these folks start their companies. So they are graduating with their uh, diploma in one hand and their incorporation certificates in the other. And that is really critically important. And in a globally competitive economy, our ability to innovate and to protect innovation is really critical. The, 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 the advantage in this new polarization between those of us in liberal democracies and mixed economies with state capitalism is the capacity to innovate. Uh, about two months ago, the, three months ago, The Economist did a major supplement uh, on, on, on state capitalism. And it pointed out uh, that while the big advantage they have and where we are weak and we need greater private sector leadership is capital gets mobilized behind national objectives at an incredible rate. And talent gets utilized at an incredible rate. Uh, governments do not have to negotiate with unions, deal with regulatory regimes, uh, or even figure out the difference between a business enterprise and a government program. It is simply directed and determined to be in the national interests. And if any of you have been to Shanghai or to Singapore, you see the magnitude of the mobility of capital, the mobilization of capital, and the mobilization of talent. That's what we're competing with. 
So our universities in this new global competition for prosperity, that's half time, okay. we're halfway? Good, thanks. <laughs> Jamie, my staff really took your uh, warning very seriously. <laughs> Is really, really critical. So how do we compete? We have to invest more in our universities and colleges continue that level of investment, but that investment will likely come from other places in the future than the public sector. We have worked with the federal government as have, we have now brought our corporate taxes in this country down to levels that are globally competitive. We are not in the situation the United States has where we have trillions of dollars stranded offshore. We have patriated our capital. We now know that our business community is sitting with more money in the bank than it has in decades, and whether it's the integration of the HST that removed a lot of the friction for the creation of employment and investment in technology, or our friend Jim Flaherty who took the taxation off assembled parts to help accelerate advanced manufacturing, or our investments in UOIT where students learn how to, at Durham College and at UOIT, how to learn the advanced robotics and software to operate that emerging technology. We have to understand that we're competing. The best model I've seen in the Western world is Michael Porter's work last year in the Harvard Business Review where he talked about shared value. The responsibility of corporations to build the talent and capital necessary to improve everything from higher yields in agriculture and new uh, genomics products to creating the capacities in their universities. That they must massively increase investment in technology to improve productivity, and they must massively invest in colleges and universities at, and our training programs and our apprenticeship programs at an unprecedented rate. If they do not do that voluntarily on, on the kinds of models of shared value, we will not compete. We have clearly done our job in Canada in the public sector to create the tax room to see the corporate community retain its capital. It is now for them to invest in their own future. We know that only 11% of people with a university or college education lost their jobs in the recession. We know that a very small, we know that the vast majority, upwards of 50% of people who did not have a high school, or did not have a university or college education, lost their jobs. We know that the pressure is on with young people under 25 who are now the people who are having the most difficulty participating in this economy, which is why the entrepreneurial platform of colleges and universities is so critically important. But right now, if I ask my friend Sheldon Levy, where is your capital coming from to drive your innovation and to put capital in the hands of young entrepreneurs, he would tell you it's mostly American, would you not? If I went to Heather Fraser at DesignWorks or Martin at U of T and I said, how many Canadian companies of the 17 who you've done productivity and innovation strategies for are Canadian? They would tell you that they were almost all American, that the Princess Margaret Hospital, I think, was one of the first Canadian institutions, and that their biggest brand now is DesignWorks Singapore, because the same state capitalist country that we're competing with is buying our innovation and productivity strategy. And why is this important? Why is a higher educated population, why is the Premier talked about innovation in education? Why a 70% goal? When we were elected, we had 57%.
We're now at about 64, 65%, depending on who numbers you use. We're number one in the OECD. Not just because it's critical that all the people that get the education are required to have it to participate in the economy, is the thing that most determines where people invest and put their capital is the level of skills and education in your workforce, which is why working with IBEW, we now have doubled the number of people in trades because trades and apprenticeships, sorry, apprenticeships, the trades are part of our post-secondary high-value economy. And one of the things that the labor movement has done in this province has learned from the Europeans, the Germans, and increasingly the Americans, that this new economy is the traditional trades and a whole bunch more trades. That we have to treat our trades through the college and the same way we treat our lawyers and our engineers. We have to treat them as the professionals they are, get government out of the way of determining the regulations and approaches, and put business and the people who do the work and the people who represent them in the driver's seat in creating an aggressive agenda for accelerating and increasing the number of people in our apprenticeships. Because we have to get to 365,000 within about 10 years to meet the increasing demands of a high-value economy, which is why the apprenticeships and trades are under the same umbrella as the universities and colleges, because we see them as critical pillars. The other thing, going forward, and I'm not going to get through my, all the things that I wanted to say to you, which will be a great relief, I hope, um, is that we have some real challenges. I almost said on my really bad days, I rewrote this speech to call it Education in the Age of Inertia. There are some days when I know all of us in this room get out of bed and think that the world is run by people, or as they joke about politicians, people who see the light at the end of the tunnel and order more tunnel. <laughs> we, we can't afford to do that. Time is short. We have a preciously short runway to start to spend smarter. Productivity is not just to be held within the private sector. You know, my friend, friends at uh, Schulich and at Ivy and at Rotman all point out to me that we do not have a single chair in this country anywhere in innovation and productivity. Not one. We have to start changing that. And that's all of our challenges. Because if we close the productivity gap with the United States, that means $12,000 more per year in everyone's pocket, right? You want to start to measure what the payback is on a university education and the payback on the partnerships between higher education institutions and the private sector, the importance of mobilizing talent and capital, it would close that $12,000 that. that would put $12,000 more real earning power in the, in the pockets of every Ontario family. And that is really a critical challenge. It is also productivity in the public education and higher education sector. When we're facing deficits that have actually brutalized some countries in Western Europe, and while we are doing way better here in the Canadian provinces and in Canada, we are still faced with unprecedented fiscal challenges that no government has ever tried to face. And to simply cut and hack and slash our way out of it would be the simple way to do it. We can't afford to undermine the very infrastructure 
that drives innovation and productivity. You can't divest all of the things from your population, keeping people healthy and well and working, getting kids educated at four and five-year-olds because we know that sends them on a different trajectory when they're 15 and 16. Governments can't make decisions in four-year timeframes. They have to make decisions in 25 and 50-year timeframes. And we have to have a shared vision. This is not a time for partisan politics. All of us have to be Ontarians first, and Canadians, and Torontonians. We have to put our collective interest ahead of our selfishness and our greed. We all are going to be asked to give something back in the way our parents gave so much. The legacy we inherited from the generation that arguably grew up with the least and left us the most, we now have to determine that legacy, and it really is determined largely by people like you and I in this room. So, What's going on in the world? The question is not about three or four year degrees. That's not the question. The question is, how do you structure education in the way that is the most dynamic, useful, and accessible, and affordable for students, that gets the highest outcome, that gets the best use of technology, that gets the best value for tax dollars, that makes it most affordable for students, and do that. The studies done by the German government of their three-year technology-enabled degrees show that they have the highest performance of critical knowledge skills, and they're the most employable people in Germany. We do not have an Ontario University or college system anymore, or an apprenticeship program. Any kid can go online right now and take their degree in Alberta at Athabasca University. And if you don't think they're eating the lunch of some of you in this room, try to figure your way. We've done some incredible things with the online university, but our goal is to be better than Athabasca. Our goal is to be, have a more integrated technology-enabled learning environment than the Western Governor's integrated university. Our goal is to beat the Australian collaborative online university and to compete with the Australians who are stealing our technology and using it and adapting it in their post-secondary institutions faster than we are. This is the great Canadian story. We educate some of the best people in the world. We invent some of the best technologies in the world and other people take them and compete against us in our own backyard. That is our challenge. That is the clarity and purpose that we have. We have to address that with clarity and purpose, and it means all of us getting off our keisters and working a lot smarter, not a lot harder. La langue française est très importante, nous autres. Nous sommes en réalité une, une province bilingue, l'est de l'Ontario, le nord de l'Ontario. En pense que le bilinguisme constitue non seulement notre patrimoine, mais aussi un avantage concurrentiel. Sur la plan internationale, nous appuyons notre diversité linguistique et assurons aux étudiants francophones, aux élèves en immersion et aux nouveaux arrivants francophones davantage des possibilités d'éducation et de formation. C'est nous autres ici. Canadien, ce n'est pas un pays bilingue, c'est un pays multilingue. Dans les, les, dans les, les rues de, 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 de les quartiers dehors de cet hôtel, il n'y a pas plus de 100 langues. Il y a des relations internationales. Dans notre université et collège, il y a des, des relations familiales, personnelles, avec des, des, des personnes dans les position de leadership partout le monde. C'est très nécessaire 
à créer, à renforcer notre relation personnelle. It, there's an expression that it's those loose global personal relationships that are found in the global families that we that live in here and the globalization of our universities. What are we going to do about Bologna? 49 countries have now signed on to a 3-2-3 program. We have had three-year and four-year degrees. It is not about how long our degrees are going to be. It is about how smart our degrees are going to be. There is no rational case for any particular length. How do we start to have an education system in which we measure quality outcomes? Look at what Texas has just done. Texas now funds their institutions based on performance and outcomes. University of Austin gets the smartest kids on paper, graduates the smartest kids on paper, but there are four other universities and colleges that gets the kids that rank middle. And by the time they get to the end, they're the highest performance students. Do we even know how to do that? And if I can start my university education in Lund, go to Slovakia and finish it in Bologna, and I can't trans transfer my credits from Mohawk to McMaster or from Lakehead to Windsor, we have a problem. <laughs> we have to not fund the future of our college and university education on the backs of our students. We have to find a better funding formula. We have to be able to understand the role of government in funding the public good, which we do through BIUs and funding, and we have to have a rational, transparent, value-based approach to understanding the role and weight of tuition as the private good, as the personal benefit. It is these kinds of things that are critical. It is why we have added 200,000 places to our colleges and universities and trade, an unprecedented expansion of our system. It is why we introduce the tuition credit. It is why we are struggling to keep tuition affordable. It is why we introduced a uh, second career that has gotten 52,000 midlife people like Jamie and I. If you asked us if we wanted to go back to, to go back to university, it would be a pretty terrifying experience. You know, it is why one of my friends who's a professor who I had lunch with the other day in another province, when I asked him how education has changed, he said, the classroom is empty. I said, what do you mean? He said, a few years ago at my university, they put a little video camera at the back. Now the kids don't want to get up at 8.30 in the morning to take class. It's now downloaded. If we don't think technology-enabled learning is something that we now have to have a serious conversation about, put a video camera in the classroom and put it on a website. Students will reinvent the system for us to be more efficient, more productive, to get higher value out of it. At the same time, textbooks publishers are asking me not to print textbooks anymore because they'd rather sell us online programs where they can get the best physicists in the world doing the lecture online. And we have to get greater productivity in our system because we can't keep uniting our universities and colleges 66% of the year when some of them, like Waterloo, are doing amazing work, or Algonquin in technology, or my friend Ann here at George Brown. We have to get better productivity and value for tax dollars out of the system. These are not about people working harder like drones on assembly lines. This is about us being as smart as our students are and being as visionary. It's an innovation economy. We're competing with state capitalism. We don't want to lose our pluralism, our civil liberties, and the oxygen 
of freedom and liberty, as John Polanyi put it, that is not just the essence of our civility, our democracy, our ability to touch each other's humanity, but it is indeed the essential element for exploration, discovery, breakthrough, and enterprise. We are small L liberals in a real sense of the word, whatever your political stripe is. We have to own the high ground. We need the pluralism that the Agda Khan has pointed out makes us the greatest country in the world. If you don't think that those clouds are ominous when you look at the absolutism and extremism coming out of, of, of theocracies in the world, if you don't think that our civil liberties and our very way of life is being challenged, we have to maintain our prosperity. We have to improve our innovation. And we have to improve our productivity. And we have to do it in the institutions that are the most important cultural, social, and economic institutions of our time, our universities, our colleges, our trade schools, and the union halls and businesses, the personal career colleges, the 500 of them, the extraordinary blessing of this education infrastructure that our parents left us and sacrificed so much for. If you don't think we can do it, look around this room. There is no place in this planet where you will see as dynamic, diverse, intelligent, able, healthy, brilliant, technology-savvy group of people in the world than you will find here. We can do it better than anyone else. We just simply have to get started. Thank you. Minister Murray, thank you very kindly. Uh, once again, you, you, didn't, uh, you didn't let us down. Uh, I want to, on behalf of the, uh, the audience here at the Canadian Club today, thank you for taking time from your schedule to, to inspire some of our thinking. Uh, we clearly need to do a better job at, uh, at taking ideas and research and finding ways to commercialize those. We've launched a, uh, a program at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce called uh, Our Collective Ambition. Which, uh, which you'll be hearing more about in the weeks and, and months to come. But clearly one of the messages that you've left me with today is that this really has to be a, a community collective ambition, that our, our city, our province, our country is too small for all of us not to band together and, uh, and once again be a competitive force here and around the world. So thank you for those comments today. I'm uh, very pleased to see uh, both Bonnie Patterson and, and Linda Franklin here today from the colleges and universities and the three students that have joined us. We have, a, an, I think, an important program going with the, college, or the, uh, the Council of Ontario Universities on, uh, on a promote uh, an incubator that, we, that we've been working on. I think it's just the first of an example that we can work on uh, together uh, as a community. And Linda, I'm going to look forward to working with you. The bottom line is that uh, innovation and working collaboratively and collectively as a, as a community is going to be our way forward. And for your comments today, Minister, thank you very much. I'll pass the podium back to Jamie and uh, wish you all a good afternoon. Well, thank you, Alan, and uh, thank you, uh, Minister Murray, so much for being with us today at lunch. This concludes our television programming. Uh, this lunch will be broadcast in the days to come on Rogers Television. We continue to be very grateful to Rogers Television 680 News for their support and publicity of all of our events here at the Canadian Club. 
you'd like to come to lunch again, don't forget to check us out at canadianclub.org. Otherwise, I hope you have a great weekend. This lunch is now adjourned. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.